It is April the 14th, 2022, and this is Curious. Hello and welcome back. I'm Chris. This is Henry. Hello. <laughs> Say something. What are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing wonderful. Um we haven't we haven't podcasted together in ages, so um That's very true. I don't know. How do we start this? Um and Mario doesn't couldn't make it today so it's just the two of us and we are going to have a short arctic news reel and a main topic we will talk about the siberian rewilding indeed so but first um, we talk about lightnings l lightning in the arctic there is an article here by the guardian talking about that what is this about there is lightning in the arctic of course there is. There ha well, historically, there haven't been many lightnings uh, recorded. And that's just something um, I figured when I lived in Iceland uh, for quite some years. And one thing I was really missing was just roaring thunder and some lightnings. And mm -hmm. I just found this article uh, a couple of days back. And oh, so, 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 so th thunderstorms aren't that common up there, you say? Storms... Are but thunderstorms with lightnings um, okay. aren't, and what uh, scientists have just um, uncovered is that in 2021, so last summer, the northernmost region of the Earth had over 7,000 lightning strikes uh, just in that year. And when you look at the at the graph that is attached to that um, yeah. source, then we see that this is almost double as many as we had okay, so in the previous nine years together. Let me let me explain that for for anyone who's not watching this on video. There's a graph and it starts in 2012 and it ends in 2021. And from 2012 to 2017, that line of lightning strikes above 80 degrees north <laughs> or at 80 degrees north is pretty much zero, almost pretty none. Zero. And then it keeps climbing and climbing and until 2020 and then it goes up like almost vertical really steep yes. from zero to over seven thousand and uh even at 85 degrees north which is almost at the north pole um it is climbing too not quite as dramatic but so that the whole the whole thunder the whole lightning activity seems to be moving north and or seems to be expanding to the north exactly and um that's just something that tells us something about the weather. There are three things we need to generate um, thunderstorms and lightning. That's moisture, instability, and lift. As we all know, uh, warm uh, warm air, cold air, interacting, That's much creating air and particles and stuff in the air rubbing against each other. And that, uh, that then ends up in an electrostatic charge and that needs to be discharged somehow. Exactly. And um, just monitoring the amount of lightnings um, gives us a trend and that shows us how the Arctic is changing. And that gives us a lot uh, on atmosphere, and, uh, atmosphere data, um, which we can see how um, atmosphere is responding to shifts in, uh, in the climate. And there is this saying, which we stress in this podcast very often, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. And that is a particular evidence here. So we can actually see that, um, yeah, the atmosphere is bringing much, much more uh, moist to the Arctic. And that's causing a lot uh, so of that, lightnings. That is one of the reasons, more moisture in the, in the atmosphere. Yes. Hmm. But 
still uh, the risk of being hit by lightning is, is very very small uh, okay that that would not be my main concern because we have a lot of thunderstorms down here and i'm quite sure that the chances for me to get hit are very low but do you know if that might have a, a an, an effect back on the weather does more lightning change the climate in some way or is that just an expression of a change in the climate it can affect actually um the increase of lightnings can also trigger more wildfires and particularly in the arctic region the more wildfires we have the more um carbon dioxide is produced by right. burning trees but also it heats up then the uh, permafrost around that so. and one of the common misconceptions that i hear over and over again is that uh fire is more likely when it's hot <laughs> no seriously seriously you, you get this a lot but but uh, there are plenty of it's more likely uh, when the wood is, is dry exactly it's a it's a it's a humidity thing and not a temperature yeah. thing fire fire burns just fine even if it's below zero outside I'm sure we covered that in a couple of episodes where we had yeah. um, the last summers, uh, our Arctic summers with fire in Greenland, in Canada, oh, in Siberia. Siberia, that was amazing. Last... Uh, uh, a dramatic amount of fires going on. Yeah, what was, yes. it? was it Was it last summer or was it 2020? I'm not sure anymore. So many things happened, meanwhile. I don't know. I we're, in the, we're in the year of the pandemic that has now taken two and a half years. So I've lost all feeling for all, all sense of time. Um... On to the second item on the Polar Newsreel. Um, Scotland, of all places. Scotland. What's going Land on with Scotland? Yeah, Scotland has been on my radar in terms of Arctic policy frameworks for quite some time. Um, latest when I uh, attended the Arctic Circuit Conference in Reykjavik and interviewed a couple of, of people. And Scotland was there having a panel talking about uh, Scotland's role in the Arctic and I was really surprised seeing Scotland coming up there as a Scotland is not an independent country but it's part of the United Kingdom and b it's not an Arctic country in the first place mm -hmm. but that is actually what happened uh, since then so Scotland particularly after Brexit is emphasizing its own policies much much stronger than in the past and that gives us also a new Arctic policy framework for the Scottish government and Scotland understands itself in uh, kind of a preparation for a possible Skexit that um, Scotland defines itself as the northernmost non-Arctic state. The Skexit, that's... <laughs> okay, and, and yeah, I mean, Scotland is is further north than Denmark and uh, or reaches further north than Denmark and... Uh, then you have the Faroe Islands, which are even further up in the north. So, yeah. You have actually, with the opening um, of the Arctic, uh, a lot of potential um, cargo traffic um, coming down. And Scotland here can work as kind of a hub between Europe oh. and uh, and the US and going into uh, Asian um, routes towards the Northeast Passage, for example, or Northern Sea Road. There are a lot of uh, things, but it's also... Uh, and that's the major part of the policy framework is a defense um, point of view. So from a, from a military point of view, uh, Scotland sees itself as the first um, addressee, if you like, uh, which is not part of the Arctic Circle of the, right. of the Arctic uh, countries when it comes to uh, the northern defense. And that already played quite uh, a big role in the uh, history of the UK. The northernmost 
um, Royal Air Force Base is uh, in Scotland, which has been facilitated in the First World War and the Second World War, has been refitted just very recently and is the hub for um, flights, um, supply flights to uh, the British Antarctic Survey stations and missions in the Arctic. So there has been quite something uh, going on. And uh, for me, this article is just uh, a very interesting touch. Um, we haven't talked about uh, geopolitics in a while, and I would love to come back to that at a later point, because in, in a bigger picture, comparing that also to other non-Arctic countries and their understanding of um, their responsibility or impact on the Arctic um, is very, very interesting. But um, yeah, just as a little standalone here, um, I find it very interesting that Scotland actually really gets into some sort of independence mode in uh, defining policy frameworks that actually go uh, further than the uh, UK Arctic uh, policy framework. And if you look at the, at the location on the map, if you, if you factor in a bit of tectonic plate shift over the next, I don't know, two or three million years, then Scotland might be closer to the Arctic at one point. So just <laughs> saying, just saying. All right. Uh, thanks for bringing this up. Um, let's get on to the main topic, the Siberian rewilding. What are we talking about? Isn't it wild enough there? I've been to Siberia and there's a lot of wildlife. There is a lot of wildlife, but when you think about um, Siberia, what's the... Uh, the two big things uh, that come up to your to your mind immediately. To my personal mind, yes. uh, it's permafrost um, and it's Lake Baikal because that's where I've been. All right, um, I would have probably dropped tundra and boreal forests. There you go. <laughs> uh, okay, but it's 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 very close. I mean, it's interconnected and. Um, permafrost is actually a very important part and uh, yeah this this um, main section today um, goes about permafrost so Siberian rewilding um, is kind of a project of um, climate change mitigation if you like okay and I would love to start just with the most recent study has been uh, just published a couple of days ago from the University of Leeds um, that actually says that large uh, swathes of permafrost peatlands in the northern uh, Europe and in western Siberia will become um, climatically, climatically unsuitable for um, the permafrost peatlands, which are very, very carbon rich, right? Uh, and that's just uh, a very few decades from now. So that's actually much, much more urgent than... Uh, previously thought and even considering a moderate warming scenario that means that we are actually much much closer to a tipping point uh, particularly in europe there is um the debate if the tipping point has already been passed or if that if we're still um moving towards it so that university uh, of leeds um, study is um, indicating that the strongest um, efforts to reduce um, carbon emissions um, will probably not have enough uh, impact to actually sustain the peat permafrost. And what is permafrost? Do you know that? Well, uh, permafrost is the part of the of the frozen ground that doesn't thaw all year round. 
Basically, yes. Permanent it, frost. That's the name. Exactly. So it, it's an active layer of soil. And in that active layer, uh, that thaws and refreezes each year. And below that, we have a frozen ground. And that frozen ground, that locks away carbon um, in form of uh, fossils, uh, plant fossils and uh, wildlife fossils. And these carbon sinks, they have accumulated over centuries and millennia. Um, however, in 2020 and 2021, the Arctic has suffered a lot um, in terms of temperatures, we recorded 38 degrees in Siberia as the new record high confirmed for the Arctic. For the Arctic, because I mean, Siberia is big and there are areas in Siberia, especially in the south of Siberia, that get these temperatures in summer pretty regularly, but it never reaches up that high. That is very true, but um, the, the measurement was actually a few degrees um, above the Arctic Circle. Um, so in, in that regard, that's really considered to be the Arctic. Right. Um, permafrost stores in total more than double the carbon of the entire atmosphere, and most of it in form of um, methane, which is about 28 times more harmful for the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. However, it has a, a shorter lifespan. So in that short lifespan, it's 28 times more harmful, and then it disappears much faster than carbon dioxide. So the uh, very bad impact happens very, very quick. So the um, forecast or the, the projections for future scenarios um, can be, um, how to say, much more certain. Um, carbon dioxide stays longer in the atmosphere. So if we cut it down now, it still has an uh, effect because it already is in the atmosphere. Methane dissolves much faster in that regard. But it is a greenhouse gas, and once that's released to the atmosphere, um, that gives a positive feedback because the thawing permafrost increases um, the warming, hence more permafrost thawing, more uh, greenhouse gases released. So it's, that's that's what we call a positive feedback loop um, in uh, climate change science. And we don't want thawing. This. Certainly not. <laughs> not really. The, the thawing <laughs> we see um, is disrupting roads, it's disrupting buildings, and it's even releasing anthrax from from old burying grounds, right? Oh um, that doesn't mean we should just throw the towel, right? The the, the rate and uh, extent to which uh, which uh, suitable climate um, are lost could be limited and possibly even reversed by strong mitigation policies. So what we see right now is that um, politicians all around the globe come together and talk more about um, those mitigation policies. However. If you look about uh, where to find the um, yeah, most helpful, most serious efforts in mitigation, then it's not um, politics-driven. And if we look to the isolated waste of northeastern Siberia, we actually can witness not only the terrifying, deadly reality of climate change with all this uh, force that nature comes with, but also a solution that is incredibly are novel and creative, and it involves um, so many fantastic things. And that's what I want to talk about today. So the remote location where scientists are working on this uh, most unlikely of all uh, solutions is um, very much far north in Siberia. It's uh, at the bank of uh, Kolyma uh, River, just outside of a small town called uh, Chersky. And this is a place... Um, that has been hit in recent years with a lot of very 
um, bad weather, a lot of warming, a lot of permafrost thawing. And this is also where father and son team called uh, Sergei and Nikita Zimov, um, they have perfect, a very unique plan to battle climate change. So for the past 33 years, the two of them have gathered some supporters around them and they have been slowly transforming the landscape in the area in an attempt to restore um, the local ecology to how it was around 11,700 years ago in the so-called Pleistocene Epoch. 11,700 years ago, that's just something that just goes beyond my mind. It's just something I can't really uh, comprehend how might the area have looked like. They have involved a lot of scientists and uh, created models. And one of the uh, interesting um, outcomings was that 11,700 years ago, the area had significantly less trees. And now we think about why is that better than having more trees? As we kind of learn, trees are big carbon sinks. What do you think? Trees are trees are amazing. They are carbon sinks. They release oxygen. They, I don't know, cool down the ground because there's shade under them. Um, why wouldn't trees be a good thing then? That's a very good question. I will come back to that later. But if you think about why are there trees now in the first place, then um, just listening to those two uh, scientists is very, very interesting. And they actually now have developed an astonishing solution, um, and that's quite a natural one. They are attempting to undertake perhaps the most significant rewilding uh, project of the planet. So for the past 20 years, they have transported musk oxen, uh, bees on horses, reindeer, goats, and other herbivores from all over the globe, um, all animals that once have populated that area. Their deer is basically born out of the theory um, that the flora and fauna of the Pleistocene Epoch uh, comprise an ecosystem that is much better adapted to preserving the temperatures of the permafrost up north uh, than we have now found in uh, Siberia. So when you think about that, herbivores roaming the area, there is no possibility for trees to grow um, in that area. We have very long cold winters, a very short span of summer where a tree could actually grow. If you have herbivores around, they will eat these uh, sprouts much, much faster than their tree actually can uh, gain significant height. And that's the basic idea of bringing those animals um, back to uh, to the place. Um, in the times of the so-called mammoth steppe, um, the Northern Hemisphere was filled with grassland stretching from present-day Spain right the way through Canada uh, across all of Eurasia. Um, yet 14,500 uh, years ago, temperatures warmed, rainfall increased, and then uh, humans found that they had new hunting uh, planes. So the hunting of humans have eradicated or moved um, the, the the wild uh, wildlife and uh, livestock um, and had hands um, a big impact on the uh, change of the landscape, if you like. So with the animals gone, the pastures could no longer be sustained. And with them went that uh, crucial natural process that uh, had preserved the permafrost for millions of years. And 
if you think about that, if you have just a plain area when snow falls down and left untouched on the ground, it creates um, paradoxically an insulating layer which then preserves the soil from uh, winter temperatures in order to get to the grasses below the base's um, hat need to go through the snow and while moving over it also compacting it so it's snow as an insulator pretty much indeed it is so they were uh, transferring the freezing temperatures of the winter months to the soil which made it colder so just by walking over it they transferred the temperatures from the snow to the soil so the insulation layer was broken now without the snow being compacted the permafrost would melt at a much much faster rate so now not having the animals there compacting the snow we suddenly have an insulation layer that warms the the soil underneath right so those two russian scientists they are working on reversing that process and they're already implementing their plan and that's just something really incredible the park um, that has around 150 animals by now um, all chosen for a purpose uh, goats are particularly uh, effective for eating weeds horses break through thick snow in winter camels eat the um, the park shrub all of that plays a significant role so nothing there happens by accident and the results um, so far achieved are uh, an incredibly cause for optimism there's really something incredible to see there soil is sequestering more carbon um, where you have grazing animals fewer uh, feeder pools of muddy um, sludge where methane methane is bubbling from the permafrost are forming so that is really just something we can see the changes happening despite the fact that the temperatures all around are increasing so we have um, a counter effect basically in that area and even the the grassland themselves they are proving much much better for the environment um, the pale grass are reflecting the sunlight much better than the dark forest tips right the deep roots um, increase the soil's carbon storage um, probability overall the temperature of the permafrost in the area which they're working on uh, now is colder by an average of 2.2 degrees and that is what? a significant difference yeah that is just, amazing. It is. I mean, I read that the first time. I, I just thought I must be wrong. So I really I mean, looked that, up a couple of these effects are up. these effects are just wild. I mean, just stuff influencing other stuff that I would not have g gone into in my mind because it doesn't it's, feel it's really logical when you when you think it's about kind of a, it. But it's kind of a human thing to to think um, we know our impact and. We, we simply don't. We call this Everything side is, effects. We call this exactly. uh, very, very strange side effects that no one would have really thought uh, about other than these, these scientists who are now changing it. It's, a, it. it's like everything is interconnected. And this is one of those examples where I clearly can see what we haven't thought through and properly. Over two, degrees, over two degrees change in the, in the temperature of the permafrost. It's amazing. It is, it is. Um, but introducing goats and horses is not the end plan for um, the, the the scientists. They really want to return the land to its place to seen state, and with all that carbon capture advantages brought by that. So their dream is to bring back um, this one very animal that most defined its environment, and that's the you mean mammoth. This one, <laughs> exactly. 
I could, I, okay, it's it's kind of hard to imagine. Um, this is this is kind of this feels a bit Jurassic Park, you know, with all the side effects that might come from that if you reintroduce an animal that is not around anymore, which which I think scientifically might put might might just be possible. It scientifically is possible, but um, again, the the big question mark here is what kind of um, impact beyond the. Um, the intention uh, will will happen there, right? But also, the, the, uh, the other question, of course, that I have is um, there's a reason the woolly mammoth isn't around anymore. So uh, is that, was that an environmental reason? And if we introduce it back to an environment that's not, that it's not made for, how? Okay, but that is that goes way too far for this episode. That's, that's a new topic then. Um, yeah. But the, the reason why they want to reintroduce uh, the woolly mammoth is that they are considered to be like the true engineers of permafrost. Um, their weight is about six tons on average, and that makes yeah. them perfect for crushing snow and stomping all of that and knocking down the trees just for, just for the fun of it, right? So they actually were the reason why the grasslands up north were grasslands and not turn into forests why the shrubs couldn't actually grow higher. So the challenges right now they're facing, um, of course, they're huge to make a significant difference to the environment. This testing area would need to grow to an area of 3 million square kilometers, um, which covers a significant part of Russia, right? Um, convincing the Russian government to transform more than one-sixth of the country um, is, well... In the unlikely most way, unlikely a vast challenge, very <laughs> unlikely indeed. But uh, looking at it just from a, from a numbers perspective um, is possibly missing the point. The park is not just about being practical in terms of climate change mitigation. It's also a philosophy. It's about raising the question of how we want to live sustainably in harmony with nature, and what distinguishes human from other animals is not. Um, only a unique capacity for self-destruction, which we see throughout the climate change discussion, but it's also the ability to imagine, to plan, and to to create. And there are solutions out there, and some, as we've just seen here, are more creative than others. For me, this is one of those beacon of hopes that I really love to just emphasize much, much more than the doomsday narrative that often hangs uh, above all climate change topics. Thank you. That's a very positive thought to end this episode with. Uh, thanks, Henry, for putting this together. Mammoths, the the big, heavy, they're like, they're like the steamrollers compacting the ground, right? They are the play, the, the steamrollers of the, of the Pleistocene. <laughs> it's amazing. All right, this brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you, everybody. thanks everyone for being here for. Uh, for listening, for watching. If you haven't watched this, we are on YouTube. We have a channel there, so um, you can find this linked in the episode. Um, we're also at curiouslypolar.com, which is our website. We have Curiously Polar Twitter handle where we post a few things and uh, let us know how you like this. We'll be back soon. Until then, everyone, 